Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Improving Accessibility in Provider Settings. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on February 21, 2018. In this podcast, Sonia Bowen, a healthcare analyst at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, Office of Minority Health, discusses the concept of access, existing federal laws and regulations, and strategies to support provider accessibility enhancements. Good afternoon. Thanks for inviting me to speak today. So despite established laws and regulations requiring that all individuals have equal opportunity to access programs and services, many healthcare offices are still not fully accessible to people with disabilities. In disability competent care, it's important to understand that access is a multifaceted concept for people with disabilities. Individuals with disability experience distinct barriers to health care in addition to what we typically think of when we talk about access to care. Accessibility barriers can be frustrating and exhausting to repeatedly encounter and often result in unmet care needs, sometimes with deadly consequences. This slide shows some examples of contributors to unmet care needs for individuals with disability. It's notable that these barriers are further compounded in health care provider shortage areas. Next slide. Individuals with disabilities experience significant disparities in healthcare access and experience worse outcomes across clinical indicators. They're less likely to obtain preventive services such as mammography or pap testing, and they're more likely to delay getting needed diagnostic or medical care because services and equipment may not be adapted to meet their needs. Next slide. So what does lack of accessible care look like for a person um, with health care needs? As an example, in the following video, Larry Voss and his wife talk about his experience obtaining an MRI, showing some health care barriers commonly experienced by individuals with a physical disability due to both lack of accessible equipment and limited knowledge of disability competent care and experience by medical professionals. Note that the audio for this video will play through your computer speakers. There's also closed captioning available on the video itself if you would prefer to follow along that way. And after, I guess, even a few more weeks, she said, well, I did find a place where we can schedule your MRI. And she gave me an address. And it was a, uh, an outpatient facility uh, connected with the hospital, but when I went there, we found out that there was no way that physically they could get me as a wheelchair user, an event user, onto the exam, you know, table that they used for the MRI, and they didn't have Hoyer lift or any kind of other ways of giving me access to that equipment. So after going down there, we were essentially said, "Sorry, we can't help you. Go back home." And we did, and continued to, you know, try and follow up with the doctor, my internist, about scheduling the MRI. So finally, we did get a call from the nurse that she had found an accessible facility. Uh, this took about nine months in total, and when the scan was done, the MRI was done, they found that it had originally been a much smaller uh, growth that they detected had become almost double the size. 
uh, during the course of the time it took to scan to set up the the imaging. Well, I think you know what we found out after many other scans that, that were done in my treatment and many other MRIs and CT scans was that really this shouldn't have been a problem at all. That they had done other people using ventilators, and that. Uh, there actually was a protocol for doing it, but the doctor that I had and his nurse evidently were completely. So effective disability competent care considers access comprehensively, both in terms of what social factors may be impacting access to care and larger contributing factors in the care environment that go beyond the clinical encounter. Unfortunately, lack of awareness and our own implicit biases can play a part in perpetuating unintentional but very real barriers. Next. I want to mention um, social determinants of health, also referred to as social risk factors, because of their relationship with access to care. For example, poverty and disability are important social risk factors that impact each other as well as other social determinants of health. So within the framework of continuous quality improvement, there are opportunities to improve access to and within the care environment to help mediate the cyclical impact of disability and poverty on health outcomes. Next. It's also important to emphasize that access to the care environment for people with disability goes beyond accessible facilities and equipment to include communication, the care processes themselves, available programs and services, and respect for each person and their lived experiences. Next. In looking at these particular examples of facility and service access, note that they are not meant to be exhaustive and they're not a checklist for meeting federal accessibility rules. I'm not going to read through them, but I want to um, in particular highlight the importance of staff training. For example, the availability of accessible scales and exam tables may meet the letter of the law. However, lack of staff training to use um, this equipment correctly and safely assist participants ultimately does not make care more accessible to an individual who may need accommodations, and it also may put staff at risk of in injury. Next. Before I get into considerations of the law, I want to acknowledge that there are a number of payment factors that can affect the care provided to people with disability. This is no doubt of importance to providers as payment for care has not traditionally accounted for the additional time and resources often needed to provide adequate care to individuals with disability. In addition, the increasing focus on value-based payment paired with documented disparities in quality measures for people with disability reinforces the need for practical payment and measurement solutions that will meet both participant and provider needs. As a quick disclaimer, this section on federal disability rights laws is intended as a high-level overview and does not constitute legal or technical guidance for meeting applicable statutory requirements. Next. It's important to understand how federal disability laws apply to the provision of health care. Becoming familiar with the basic intent of the law can help alleviate initial fears about potential liability and provide a, a framework for beginning the process of what I like to call continuous accessibility improvement. 
To start with, a disability is defined under federal disability rights laws in part as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. This is similar to what we think of clinically in terms of functional impairment or limitations in instrumental activities of daily living, for example. The main point here is that the statutory de definition is broad and as such covers many people with chronic illnesses. So Section 504 and the um, American with Disabilities Act, which I'll refer to as the ADA, are not the only federal disability laws, but they're most applicable within the context of healthcare delivery. These two laws are similar in that they both protect qualified individuals from discrimination on the basis of disability. The key difference between Section 504 and the ADA, and this includes different title provisions within the ADA, is in the applicable covered entities. However, it is possible for healthcare programs and services to be subject to both. So this slide provides the general framework for which provisions apply to different types of um, healthcare entities. Next. Uh, I also wanted to mention, in addition to federal law, the Medicaid Managed Care Rule, um, and it's not Medicare as shown on, on the um, previous slide, it includes requirements for states and health plans to provide needed communication supports to enrollees and potential enrollees who have a disability. In regard to data collection and reporting guidelines, although there is no national level database reporting information on the accessibility of healthcare facilities and services, the Medicaid managed care guidelines do include a requirement that plan provider directories include information on the accessibility of network provider offices and facilities. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid plans have been reporting on accessibility elements in provider directories as a requirement of the Financial Alignment Initiative. Next. Uh, next. So there are different strategies to consider when developing and implementing an accessibility plan and budgeting for making improvements over time. Training, um, next please, training for providers and office staff is a critical strategy for increasing accessibility in the care environment. For example, incorporating a standard process and then training staff for collecting information on accessibility needs at the time of scheduling an appointment and again at the point of care is similar conceptually to collecting address and insurance information with every appointment. Accessibility needs can change over time, so they should be routinely assessed and documented. Other examples of low-cost changes to improve accessibility include rearranging furniture to ensure a consistently clear pathway and waiting area for individuals who use a wheelchair or other mobility device, and also um, another example is designating additional accessible parking spots. To help with financial barriers that health plans and providers may face in ongoing efforts to improve accessibility, there are two federal tax incentives that I wanted to mention that are available to eligible businesses, including um, in healthcare. The first is the Disabled Access Credit. It's available to small businesses to offset costs for removing access barriers to facilities 
obtaining or modifying equipment and providing accessibility services um, and materials in alternate communication formats. Secondly, the barrier re removal tax deduction is available to businesses of any size, and it's a business expense deduction for costs associated with removing barriers to facilities or vehicles. I wanted to note that small businesses can sometimes use both tax incentives in combination if the expenses qualify under both of the, both tax code provisions. More information on both is available um, at irs.gov and also ada.gov. Next. A final note of importance is that there are new practitioner billing codes that are available under the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule for prolonged preventive services. This is significant in that the provision of reasonable accommodations in preventive care for individuals with disability may include extra time and resources. Um, it's important to stress that the prolonged preventive codes can only be billed with Medicare-covered preventive services where the beneficiary coinsurance and deductibles are not applicable. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes a full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.